0: Let's open with prayer. Can you hear me? Yes. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us hearts prepared to receive your word with gladness and cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Teach us great and mighty things which we do not know. Amen. I also want to open with a hymn. As the mountain of the Lord in the opening of Isaiah 2 reminds me of a hymn written by Dr. Ed Clowney, which is number 292 in our red hymnal. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord To search the mystery in heaven stored The knowledge of the Holy One adored Alleluia One King alone Whose hands and heart are pure One servant of the Lord with purpose sure Can enter in that glory to endure Alleluia He only can ascend to God's right hand Who first came down as his high mercy planned. True God and man has earth and heaven spanned. Alleluia. Before the clouds receive the king on high, a cross lifts up his form against the sky. The framer of the worlds has come to die. Alleluia. He shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, the king of glory, whose own blood outpoured Paid that dear price that mercy did afford. Alleluia. Okay, so can you hear me better? Problem hearing me. As a wise friend of mine said, the key question is, whose kingdom am I living for? God's or mine? It's all about God's kingdom and my kingdom colliding. His kingdom is here already. And it's not contingent on whether or not I'm aware of it. But I find that when I'm not aware of his kingdom and am more about my kingdom is when I have much more unrest. Do you know the feeling of walking into a room and wondering what people think of you? That's all about our kingdom of being affirmed by people or not wanting to be noticed. When I'm thinking of someone dear to me moving away, and my chest tightens, it could be about my kingdom of control, of realizing that is what is most precious to me isn't under my control or dominion. When I notice that I am behind on where I want to be with my to-do list, it's about my kingdom again, my will of what I'm wanting to get done. Anything that we are worshiping other than God is often something good that he created but it wasn't meant to be God, it can be something good gone bad. Valuing your family, wanting to get things done off your to-do list, and so forth isn't the problem until that's what you're worshiping. And when the thing you want most isn't happening, which is a clue that's what you're worshiping, that could be when you notice yourself getting anxious, frustrated, or stressed. Something is becoming more about your kingdom than God's. When my body turns to fight or flight mode because I feel threatened It's so easy for me to think that I'm the victim Rather the truth is that it's not me that's being threatened. It's my kingdom. That's being threatened my kingdom of control Certainty appearances perfection and so on And god loves me too much to let that kingdom stand in today's passage we see Judah's self made kingdom where they have forsaken God's covenant with them. God brings judgment and cleansing in order to re establish Judah's glory in God's kingdom where God alone is exalted. What is judgment? According to the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, judgment is defined as setting things to rights, akin to justice. Throughout Scripture, Judgment is frequently partnered with righteousness and salvation. For instance, for instance, in Isaiah one verse twenty-seven, Jerusalem must be redeemed with judgment or justice and righteousness. The imagery that we saw in the nation of Judah suffering judgment for sin parallels and foreshadows the suffering of God's servant, the Messiah, who endured the judgment of God in His own body on behalf of his people. Isaiah 2 through 5 sets the stage, as well as introduces the themes for the rest of the book. One of the main ideas of today's passage is that proud, self-sufficient Judah can become witness to the greatness of God only when she has been reduced to helplessness by his just judgment, and then restored to life by his unmerited grace. Most of what I say today comes from the commentator, Oswald. First, I'll read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the destiny of the house of Jacob. The word of the Lord, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In this section... The focus is upon Judah's glorious destiny as a lighthouse to the nations for truth and peace. God promises the certainty of Judah's destiny. The absolute requirements of justice and righteousness will be achieved, and Zion will be redeemed. Thus, Zion will be fit to be God's dwelling place. Whatever the present may be, and however grim the immediate future may be, the distant future. Beckons the Judeans to live in its certain light. What can convince the present Judeans to live lives of faithfulness and righteousness? Not the threat of punishment, but rather the promise of greatness. Despite appearances of the judgment to come, Oswald says the destructive lash under which they bow is indeed not to their final dissolution, but to their restoration. Judah exists not not merely as another nation but in order that the nations might be redeemed. In that day, the nations will stream to Zion like a river to learn the ways of her God through his incarnation in Christ. Malachi also spoke of the nations. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. When a person or nation decides that he must supply his own needs and that he is the final judge, both of what his legitimate needs are and how those needs may be met, the weaker are trampled and violence results. This was the picture painted in chapter 1. Where does peace come from? From knowing that their interests are being cared for by God and that each will submit his or her needs to God rather than attempt to satisfy them in their own way. Isn't that our story? Okay, the second section, number two on your handout, Isaiah 2, 6 through 4, 1, is sandwiched between two segments whose tones are hopeful and sits in stark contrast with them. In the outer portions of the sandwich, we see the genuine and fitting exaltation of Yahweh, and the dignity of humanity under God. By contrast, this middle portion of the sandwich depicts the temporary, contemptible, and foolish self-exaltation of humanity. In the first section, verse 3, the nations have come to Jerusalem to learn God's ways. Here, Jacob is full of the Gentiles' ways. In the former section, God is exalted and peace holds sway. Here, mankind is exalted, and terror holds sway. Judah's lifestyle has become indistinguishable from that of pagan humanity. Isaiah shows a Judah which has exalted and adulated human leadership, experiencing the complete destruction of that human greatness, to the point that she is led by children and incompetence. True human greatness cannot appear until God's greatness is permitted to shine over all. Until that takes place, humanity's potential is zero. Why is it imperative that the people of Judah learn to walk in the light of the Lord? Because of the covenant which God has established with his people. In Isaiah's time, God's people have forgotten and forsaken his covenant. They cannot, in the expectation of some ideal future, continue to live in their sin. If they will not change their ways, as in fact they didn't, then restoration can only come to them through humiliation and the destruction of their false hopes and the false kingdoms of man. What is the cause of their trouble? It is the exaltation of mankind and establishing man's kingdom. As has always been the case with the human race, they saw achievement of national and personal security as the paramount aim and believed that manipulation of the powers that be was the way to achieve that aim. But God called the Judeans to commit their security to him in trust and to give their attention to justice and righteousness. This is the dilemma God's people have faced and still face throughout history. Listen to God or listen to man In Isaiah 2, everything that could make Judah great, physically speaking, she had The abundance of wealth and armaments But unless that wealth and power were understood to be God's gift alone And not the work of human hands through idols It would finally prove to be a curse For idolatry is ultimately the creation of God, little g or really not God in man's image for the purpose of achieving human ends. When we put our hope in someone or something or even in ourselves, we elevate that person or thing as God in our lives. Our tendency to make ourselves the center of all things and to explain all things in terms of ourselves is the problem. Isaiah 2:17 says, "And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled." And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. When we exalt God, we too are lifted up. When we exalt ourselves with our pride and self-sufficiency, we inevitably humiliate ourselves, leaving God alone exalted. Isaiah 2.19 and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord And from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth What is the fear of the Lord and how is that different from terror of the Lord? Tim Keller says fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed to be controlled by something To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God And his love It means that because of his bright holiness And magnificent love You find him fearfully beautiful That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness The more we experience a trembling awe and wonder Before the greatness of all that he is And has done for us Fearing him means bowing before him Out of amazement at his glory and beauty Judah, having refused the fear of the Lord, now knows terror of him. Verse 22 of chapter 2 closes with the final devastating word on human glory. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Man's persistent pervasive sin, namely attempting to be God, prevents achievement of true, genuine humanity. Man has been that way since the Garden of Eden, and the same is true of us today. In chapter 3, the leader's sin is that they have abused the trust given them. Kingship was supposed to be, not privilege, but responsibility. The responsibility of building up God's people. Instead, part of Judah's judgment is being ruled by incompetence, characterized by immaturity and weakness, in fact, there is nothing left to rule but a ruin, and no one wants to have even that little responsibility. In verse 16 of chapter 3, beauty ends in shame. Wealthy women, secure in their luxury and their allure, are reduced to scabrous hags begging to belong to someone. This is figurative usage, applying not just to women, but to all humanity. The effect of self-exaltation is a confrontation with the only truly self-sufficient being in the universe, the only one whose glory is not derived. The result of that confrontation is a humiliation, a stripping away of all false supports. Here is the final end of our desire to avoid dependence. We will become dependent in the most degrading and disadvantageous ways. Does this predicted destruction mean that God will give up on Judah? Resoundingly, no, God will not give up on his people. In fact, the coming fires of the exile will only serve to make his people more like what God has always wanted them to be. I'll read aloud chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, And over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Earlier references to the term in that day used in this passage were of retribution and judgment. Yet God's final purpose is not destruction of his people. God's coming day would not merely vindicate them nor annihilate them. Rather, God's coming day would only be complete when cleansing and restoration had taken place. The real and lasting produce of Judah, the fruit of the land, is God's gift. God will give her a new source of honor and exaltation. When God gives her glory, then she will know her true greatness, the greatness which eluded her when she sought to produce it herself. This is the purpose of judgment and of redemption, that God's people should be holy. Indeed, this was the purpose of the exodus and of the giving of the law. In part, that means to become his possession and to become like God. You know, we truly are destined to be like God. We were created in his image, and our destiny is to be conformed to the image of his Son. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. In this sense, we become a reflection of him. This can be a good thing gone bad when instead we want to replace God or be equal to God or be God. The problem is when we attempt to be like God on our own terms. But redemptively speaking, we are being made holy and we are being made like him by the God who created us. In chapter 4, Isaiah sees hope. Through the very judgment for sin. The fiery judgment would be a factor in the cleansing process. The purgative fire is a gift from God. Jerusalem's blood guilt will be purged. With a spirit of judgment. Expressing divine justice. And a spirit of burning. Expressing divine holiness. Sin must be born. And it cannot be born apart from bloodshed. According to Zechariah. It is through the branch that the guilt of Judah will be removed and a fountain opened for the cleansing of her sin. This branch is Christ. In today's passage, we see God's people Israel bearing judgment for their sin, which points forward to Christ, who is the true Israel, bearing judgment and punishment for the sin of God's people. Because believers are united to Christ, we do not bear that punishment. Rather, we are being refined, purified, and disciplined for the purpose of cleansing and being made holy and fit for his presence. In that sense, we don't need to fear judgment. Chapter 4 contains allusions to the pillar of cloud and fire from Exodus and Numbers. This establishes a sense of continuity with the past and lets hearers know that the searing words of judgment did not mean that God would abandon his ancient covenant with them. It reaffirms that God's ultimate intention was to share his presence, the glory with them as intimately as possible. The cloud also speaks to them of God's care expressed for them through the protection and guidance provided by the pillar. The canopy of cloud and fire, so terrifying to God's enemies, will be a source of comfort to the remnant. The same fire which purged them is now their protection and their hope. Yes, there is hope, but that hope cannot annihilate the present. As we move to the song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, here is the need to face the present and its relation to what immediately lies ahead. This is a parable. The vineyard is Judah, the source of God's delight and the object of his desire. Yet the fruit of God's labor is not the justice and righteousness he had worked for, but instead oppression and violence. How costly and devastating was their lack of fruit. Isaiah's song of the vineyard reminds me of Jesus's parable of the vineyard in Matthew 21 and Luke 20, which reads, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to him themselves, This is the heir let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him what then will the owner do to them he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons how do we bear fruit as john 15:5 says jesus is the vine and we are the branches because we are united to Christ, we can ins- in- expect his fruitfulness in our lives as we abide in him. As we gaze on him and marvel at his beauty, it transforms us. Moving on in chapter 5, we learn more about God. Verse Chapter 5, verse 16 tells us that the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. What marks God as God is his essential justice and righteousness and being truly holy. God is in himself holiness. In his rule, he embodies righteous principles and displays his holiness in acts of judgment where he puts everything to rights. It is not our limited intelligence, limited power, or a limited lifespan that drags us down to humiliation before God. It is our inability to love justice and to do rightly that makes a mockery of us. In the remainder of chapter 5, Isaiah speaks of woe to the wild grapes, who are characterized by greed and indulgence, by cynicism and perversion. Their sin is not content to live alongside righteousness. Any more than disease will coexist with health. Their sin is only satisfied when righteousness is destroyed. The coming result is destruction. Isaiah makes the illusion of coming destruction explicit in a powerful piece of poetry. Isaiah's use of terse Hebrew phrases with no subject gives the idea of a quick march, a picture of the rapid and remorseless onslaught of the enemy army. The great imperial armies sweeping the world in the fifth century to ninth century BC were not the shapers of the world's destiny, but were themselves shaped by the one who holds all things. It is upon his signal that they rise and move. At his whistle they come out of hives like bees to do his bidding. Isaiah chapter five ends with darkness. Darkness makes us uncomfortable, and we want to hurry past it. But in our present fallen experience, darkness is real, and it can last a long, long time. What do we do when we can't even see the light at the other end? What do we do when our husbands lose their job? What do we do when we have a miscarriage again and again? What do we do when a rebellious teenager builds up walls of hostility? Yet we know, even though we can't see, that this is not the end of the story. We recall the story's purpose for God's people Judah, which is the same for God's people today, refining and purging. God is presently at work in the lives of his people, bringing restoration and redemption until its final consummation. Isaiah continues in chapter 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and describes the brightness of his glory. A few chapters later, Isaiah comforts us. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has dawned. We hearken back to Isaiah 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What I want to leave us with is that proud, self-sufficient Judah can become the witness to the greatness of God only when she has been reduced to helplessness by his just judgment and then restored to life by his unmerited grace. Isaiah sees hope through the very judgment for sin. The fiery judgment would be a factor in the cleansing process. The purgative fire is a gift from God. The canopy of cloud and fire, so terrifying to God's enemies, will be a source of comfort to the remnant. The same fire which purged them is now their protection and hope. Let me close with a poem written by my husband, inspired by the song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. Oh, my beloved, my heart aches for you, who for us, your people, are faithful and true. When we stand in darkness and you we accuse, we still stand in your favor, in Christ's love unmoved. How can we say we're all ours? You've no right to expect with such longing gorgeous fruit to find. For your sweet mouth flavor, astonishing sweet, hearts bursting with worship are your favorite treat. You've earned it more times than there are stars in the sky. Far cry from what's possible to count what you've shined, uprooting rebellion from our rocky paths to sow your pure gospel that ever will last. How close the connection between us and the vine, we branches draw savor from Christ to survive. The ways we wasted it, please now from us prune. So we bear not the bitter.